You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of James. Here's Nate. Well, in approaching James chapter 5, verse 7, it's important to keep in mind that James has just spoken to the church about the coming of the Lord. And specifically in the first six verses of chapter 5, has addressed the church about the way that we handle wealth and finances and specifically spoke to the wealthy in the church regarding the way that they handled their finances in light of the soon return of the Lord, that the coming of the Lord is at hand. And with that in mind, James then writes in verse 7 and says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. There's this need, James says, for a real steadfastness, a patience, a long suffering for the believer. And it's so important for a believer to have endurance in this life. Almost everything in this world is going to come up against you to tempt you to back away from the race that Jesus Christ has given to you. One of the things that Paul said about John the Baptist is that he ran his course. And Paul spoke that same thing about his own life. He wanted to run the race that Christ had committed into his hands. And that race for each one of us takes a huge amount of endurance, the ability to think long, to be long-tempered, to think about how we want to end. I remember talking to an expert runner friend of mine right before I got ready to run in a particular race. I wasn't trying to win, just trying to do as best as I could. And he said to me, what you need to think about is how you want to end the race. If you want to be strong, if you want to have energy at the end and burst towards that finish line, that you need to Plan accordingly for the rest of the race. Pace yourself, prepare yourself, and save some energy for that final push. And it'd be good for Christians to think, how do I want to end? James says here that in order for us to make it to that point, we have to be patient. There must be a steadfastness within us. One of the first things that I think a Christian needs to have, according to James in this short little section that we're studying today, is they need to have, we need to have an ability to wait for the late rains. Notice what James says in verse 7. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so James uses the first of a couple of illustrations here to talk to us about endurance and patient steadfastness. The first example here is from the farming community there in Israel. You have the farmer and the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth. He's enduring, he's waiting. But James mentions something very specific. He waits until the fruit of the earth receives the early and the late rains. Now, the way that things worked in that era was that for them in that region, they would plant the grain early in the fall. And then 
after they planted it, sometime in the fall, there would be the early rains. No farmer worth his salt would go out and expect to reap a harvest after the early rains. No, he would wait, continue to work the land, but be patient. And eventually, in the spring, there would be then the late rains. And after the late rains, the farmer would then expect and anticipate for that harvest to come. And I think that in one sense, what the way I would say it is that we often expect too much now and too little later. You know, after the early rain, someone first becomes a believer or our children are first born and starting to, you know, learn about Jesus or in your own life, you first start walking with Christ. There can be this massive expectation of what can come after those initial rains and hardly any anticipation of what could come later on uh, in your life. But James says you also, verse 8, be patient. Wait for those latter rains. Establish your hearts. Expect that there's a future work that Jesus is going to do in your life or in the lives of the people around you and anticipate the future good, precious fruit that Jesus Christ will bring about. You know, I was 18 years old when I started walking with the Lord and I started walking with the Lord in an overly Calvary Chapel uh, kind of setting. I was just embedded in Calvary Chapels uh, there at the beginning. A Calvary Chapel home church, a Calvary Chapel Bible college, Calvary Chapel pastors and teachers. And so I was constantly hearing about Calvary Chapels. And this was about 1996 that I started walking uh, with the Lord. And so Calvary Chapels had been around for, you know, over 25 years at that time. And the Calvary Chapel story or narrative at that point was fairly simple. Some of the stories could be summed up in, in books they would write about these young men who as hippies or living in the counter culture or strung out or in gangs or whatever would come in and hear the message and feel the love and would come to Christ. And their growth was so rapid, and it almost seemed in the retelling of these stories that these men would then immediately go out, preach the gospel, reach hundreds, if not thousands, start churches, and at, you know, 19, 20, 21 years of age, would be responsible spiritually for the pastoring of massive amounts of people. So when I started walking with the Lord at 18 years of age, this pressure really began to fill my heart. I had this massive expectation of what I thought Christ could do and would do in my life almost immediately. But you know, as time went on, I realized that it was important for me to grow, to become established, to absolutely expect the Lord to work in my life, but to expect those latter rains, to expect that the greatest things were yet to come and to wait for those late rains and to expect and to anticipate not what the Lord will do right now, but also to anticipate what the Lord will do in the future. And like I said, I think we often expect too much now and too little 
later. Don't be overly discouraged with your seemingly slow growth and victory at the beginning. Keep at it. Continue walking with the Lord and see what he might do. Now, specifically in all of this, James is not necessarily just talking about personal growth or fruit or ministry. He's talking about the coming of Jesus. We have to wait for the late reign of the coming of Christ. He says in verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The greatest reign that we're waiting for, the greatest fruit we are waiting for is the full realization of the kingdom of Christ. The farmer here in James's analogy was working towards the day of harvest and we are working towards the day of Christ's kingdom. And what he's trying to do is encourage us that a day is coming where accounts will be reconciled, wrongs will be righted, and and uh, the Lord is going to be the perfect judge. He is going to return. Wait for the late reign of the coming of Jesus Christ. And as we look about the world that we live in, it should be clear to us that all of this is going to come to some kind of head at some moment, and the world will reject Christ. Some will accept Christ, but his kingdom, as he's told us to pray, is coming. Your Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I find, however, that at times it's easy for me to wait for the latter reign in my own heart. It's easy for me to wait for the latter reign of the coming of Christ, or at least to long for it. But so often it's difficult for me to wait for the latter rain, the late rain in the lives of other believers. That's why I think he says in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We're to wait for the late rain in the lives of other believers. We're to be patient. And so often we're patient. We're long-suffering with persecution or with our own lack of growth or for the Lord's return. But we're also called to be patient with one another, to believe that the Lord is not finished in the lives of the people all around us. You know, in Joel chapter 2, there's a wonderful prophecy. I've heard it quoted quite often. The people there in Israel had experienced locusts coming through and decimating their land. But the Lord promised them, he said, listen, that was part of your judgment, but the days are coming when the threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, and my great army, which I sent among you. And we reference that prophecy, the Lord saying especially, I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. And we talk about that and encourage each other. Hey, listen, whatever you've lost, whatever years the locust has eaten proverbially proverbially in your life, uh, whatever the locust has taken out, the Lord can restore to you those years. He can make the end brighter and more wonderful than the beginning and things like that, statements of that nature. And it's easy for us to believe that about ourselves and our own lives. But can we believe it about the people around us? That the Lord has a purpose, the Lord has a plan, and the Lord is restorative and can restore 
their lives and the harm that they have caused and the years that the locust has eaten. So if you want to have steadfast endurance, you must wait for the late rains. But then in verse 10, James moves on. And I think in one sense, his next example, it's real simple. He wants to talk about the prophets. And I think in one sense, James is just saying to these believers, listen, if you want steadfast endurance, you really have to be okay with being different. He says in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, verse 11, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Now, as James references these Old Testament prophets, he's, of course, writing to a group of people, the dispersed Jewish believers scattered throughout the world. And because of their heritage and their love for the Old Testament, they had these prophets in their history that they so admired. And James holds them out as an example of suffering and patience. And absolutely, as you read the Old Testament, as you see the suffering that Elijah experienced at the hand of Ahab and the hand of Jezebel, as you see the suffering that David, who I consider him slightly prophetic, especially as you read his Psalms, he suffered and was patient with Saul. You look at Ezekiel, who was a living illustration of sorrow as he experienced the death of his wife, or Jeremiah, who was thrown into the stocks and then prison and then the miry dungeon at the bottom of a pit. And you discover that every one of these prophets suffered and endured for the Lord. So much so that Stephen said in Acts 7 verse 52 Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? So, you know, the the reality as you read the Old Testament is that, yes, in the New Testament era, the prophets were seen as great heroes. But in the lives that they lived, they were rejected. They suffered. They demonstrated great patience. And for these believers to just simply consider... You know, listen, we name our children after these prophets, but their contemporaries rejected them. You you have to, if you want to have steadfast endurance, you have to be okay with being different like the prophets were different. Be okay with being rejected like the prophets were rejected. You might not be popular today. You might not be famous in the now. You might be hated and and scorned and rejected, but your life long-term will be embraced. Elijah was like this. John was different. Daniel was different. Hosea was different. Isaiah was different. Oftentimes the life that is admired now will not be admired later, but lives that are not admired now now are often admired later. We want to live a life regardless of whether we're admired or not in this life. We want to live a life that will be admired for all of eternity. And and to that, I think we have to be okay with a little bit of persecution, a little bit of pressure, a little bit of hatred. Be okay with being different. Your speech, your conduct, your priorities, living a different kind of life. Thirdly, 
in order to endure and have patient steadfastness, I think you have to set your mind on something very specific, really the end of the story, the last chapter. He says at the end of verse 11, he says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so here, James now gives his third illustration, first from farming, secondly from the prophets of the Old Testament, and now from Job. Job, the story of the life of Job. It's very possible that Job was uh, one of the, if not the first book of the Bible written. Uh, not the first in chronology, of course. Nothing can come before the book of Genesis, but perhaps first in order of actually being uh, written down and recorded. And the life of Job is a fascinating life. Uh, the beginning of his life uh, started so well. A righteous man uh, loved the Lord, feared the Lord. It says in Job chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, that he had seven sons and three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants. This man, it says in Job 1, verse 3, was the greatest of all the people of the East. And of course, you might know the story, but Satan presented himself along with all of the other sons of God before the Lord. And God said, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him? And Satan said, well, you've blessed his life so much that, of course, he honors you. Of course, he loves you. Let me take from him. And so the Lord gave permission. And Satan really, in many ways, destroyed Job's life. All of his children died. His possessions were uh, destroyed. He was left with absolutely nothing except for his wife and his own health. Then Satan had permission again from the Lord and Satan touched his health from the bottom of his foot to the crown of his head. A very persecuted and, uh, you know, uh, just a man of intense suffering. And then, of course, the story goes on that Job's counselors, his friends came into his life and they basically blamed Job for the events in his life. They basically asked over and over again, what have you done? What wrong and sin have you committed to bring this uh, upon your life? And then finally at the end, the Lord questioned Job along with Elihu and straightened Job out. And, and notice what happened at the end of his life. It says in Job 42, the last chapter, verse 12 and 13, it says, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning." And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The interesting thing about those numbers is that everything in Job's life doubled at the end of his life. You know, at the beginning, first chapter, he had 7,000 sheep. At the end, he had 14,000. At the beginning, he had 3,000 camels. At the end, 6,000. Everything doubled except, except for his children. His children, he had seven sons and three daughters at the beginning. And at the end, he had seven sons and three daughters. I think this says something about the Lord. Now, Job here 
is an illustration of something. James says, you have seen the purpose or the end of the Lord. Now, what was the purpose of the Lord? Was God trying to give us this message where he says, listen, you know, you might go through trials and I might take things from you and it might be really hard and it might be super painful, but hold fast to your integrity. Don't blame me. And eventually, I'll give you double of everything, and I'll even replace your children who have died. That would be such a weird picture of God. I mean, to think that God would be so compassionless that he would say, Hey, listen, I know you lost seven sons and three daughters, but here's seven sons and three daughters to replace them. Forget about your pain. No, even though Job received seven sons and three daughters, I'm sure that he and his wife were still hurt deeply that they had watched their first seven sons and three daughters die. I don't think that that's the purpose of the Lord that is trying to be communicated. Think about the life of Job. Think about the flow of his life. The book of Job, like I said, potentially the first book of the Bible written, is a beautiful illustration of the history of mankind and the redemption that God in Christ is winning for all who will believe on Jesus. I mean, think about it. Job's life had a beautiful beginning. It had a horrible and long middle and the end of the book of Job has an incredible ending that is twice as blessed as the life at the beginning. And, you know, seven sons and three at the beginning and seven sons and three daughters at the end. That picture accurately represents the story of the Bible. The first couple of chapters, absolutely beautiful. The Garden of Eden, sinlessness, perfection, no shame, then sin in Genesis 3 and a long history there in the middle and the last two chapters of the book of Revelation declare to us a place that is twice as wonderful as we had in the beginning. If you want to have endurance, a steadfast endurance, you have to set your mind, you have to set your heart on the end on the last chapter, on heaven itself. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. To, to hear Paul describe the trials of his life as light momentary affliction. I mean, I have experienced nothing in my life as far as trials are concerned, in comparison with Paul the Apostle. But he says that his trials and hardships were light momentary affliction when he compared them to the eternal weight of glory in Christ Jesus. You think about eternity, you set your mind upon the last chapter, and steadfast endurance will be built up within you. Now, in verse 12, James then says something that almost appears not to fit the context of building up patient endurance. He says in verse 12, 
but above all my brothers do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation now of course this is very similar to the words of jesus in matthew chapter 5 uh, where Jesus is telling us not, not that we're to be people who never make a contract or sign a document or make a vow at a wedding or testify in court. That wasn't the problem. The problem that Jesus dealt with were these people who had a complicated oath-making system, swearing by heaven or by earth, in order to get out of being people of their word. And so Jesus, right along with James, said, well, listen, don't do that, but let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And James here says, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And so it's an incredibly good thing to be a yes person. When you say yes, you mean yes. And there are times where you're supposed to say no. And when you say no, you should actually mean no. And so a wonderful statement from James. And I would encourage you, be a person who keeps your commitments, who keeps your vows, who does the thing that you set out to do. And when you say yes to someone, keep that commitment. When you say you'll be there, be there as much as is possible with you. Keep your promises, keep your commitments, keep your covenants. However, the question we should ask here is, why does James say this right here? He's talking to this persecuted group of people and he's telling them, you've got to endure steadfastly, wait for the coming of the Lord, uh, be like the prophets who endured and were steadfast, uh, you know, wait for the fruit of the harvest to eventually come, set your mind upon heaven and then be a yes and no person. Keep your covenants, keep your commitments. Why would he say that? In this context, I think he's saying it for this simple reason. When the pressure of persecution, whether it's actual, physical, literal, militant persecution against you, or it's emotional, intellectual, and you know, ridicule, mocking, scoffing, uh, or even just... Uh, attacks against your morality that you've stood for and stuff like that, when that's coming up against you, the temptation is to say no to the things you previously said yes to and to say yes to the things you previously said no to. The temptation is to say, well, listen, I gave my life to Jesus and started walking with him and I made a commitment that I would reserve my body sexually for the person that I joined myself together with in a covenantal marriage one to the other. But then someone in your life challenges you, ridicules you, tells you that's an archaic position. And you have a temptation now to the very thing you said no to previously to say yes to currently. But it's important for us to be a people of our word. Hold steady. Don't make allegiances that you'll regret. Stand for the Lord. Keep your theology tight. Don't change your beliefs and your perspectives just because of some CNN poll. Stand fast. 
Don't evolve in the wrong doctrinal direction just because of a pressure that has come against you in the world. It's important for us to be a yes person who keeps our yeses and a no person who keeps our noes. I think that's why James references this at this particular moment. Do not let, he's saying, do not let the pressure crack you. Steadfast endurance. Man, we've got to cultivate it in our hearts. So necessary for this life, this walk, the things that Jesus has asked of our lives. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.